Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be here and good to be able to worship with you and uh, read the Bible with you. Hopefully by now you are reading along with us in our Love This Book series. Uh, we're in part three. And this, this past week, um, if you were reading with us, you would have read perhaps one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible found in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. So I uh, hope you are doing that with us. If you aren't, go ahead, just sign up for the Love This Book. You can find the Bible reading plan on our church's website, or you could go to YouVersion and download the uh, Bible uh, reading plan, Love This Book, Part 3. Well, recently I had uh, a conversation with one of my daughters, and we were talking. I think it, it, it kind of was because of our Bible reading plan. And it was a, a profoundly theological question. She asked me, uh, Dad, how do we know if someone is a Christian? Right? Like, how, how do you really know if someone is a Christian? Because we, we know that just because you go to church or, or, you know, just because you wear particular jewelry, it doesn't make you a, a Christian. I'm not really sure what prompted this particular question, but it's a good question nonetheless. It's a question that people have been asking for hundreds of years. In fact, Nicodemus is asking Jesus that very same question in a slightly different way. He's asking uh, Jesus, like, how do we get into the kingdom of God? And that's a question that, that's before us this week as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. How do we know if someone is in God's kingdom? And when Nicodemus asked him, the response that Jesus gives to him is, well, you need to be born again, right? And it's this whole long discussion about what does being born again mean? And in fact, that's where we get the phrase, a born again Christian. People might say, you know, ask you, are you a Christian? And, and you might hear someone say, yes, I'm a born again Christian. And what they're saying is uh, they are that kind of Christian, that there's this uh, new birth from the spirit. But let, let, let me ask another question. How do we know if someone is truly a born-again Christian, right? How, how do we know if someone is truly a born-again Christian? Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and it should cause us to pause a little. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do many mighty works in your names? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And, and for us as Christians listening to this, it should make us have a serious pause. There are people who are doing miracles, casting out demons, prophesizing, and Jesus is saying, nope, I never knew you. You were never a part of our kingdom. So how are we to know if someone is in the kingdom? How do we know if someone is, is in part of a God's family? And so, uh, you know, that's not truly for us to know entirely, but God does give us some characteristics. And fortunately, Jesus gives us this message, which is uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount, it gives us uh, this sermon where Jesus is proclaiming the priorities and the values the kingdom of the kingdom of God, right? This is what the citizens of the kingdom of God will look like. This is how they will behave. They're going to be so radically different from the rest of the world, right? From an outsider's perspective, when they look at this person, they would say, 
there's something different about them. It's not the way, it's not like their accent. It's not how they're dressed. It's just how they live their lives. And so today I just want to look at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And this week we'll have an opportunity to read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. So let me pray once again. We'll invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through these Beatitudes. Uh, and we'll invite the Holy Spirit to, to convict us and to guide us, to comfort us. Uh, to lead us as we study these Beatitudes together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have invited us into your family, invited us into your kingdom. You've called us your daughters. you called us your sons. And Heavenly Father, we want to look like your son, Jesus Christ. We want to look like our older brother, Jesus. And so even now, as we look at these Beatitudes, would you Cause your word to be a mirror to our souls. And would your spirit continue to do its transformational work in our lives? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to just read through the first 12 verses uh, as we go through this message. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We read, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I just want to pause here because uh, oftentimes people will wonder, well, you know, what is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Are they uh, the entrance requirements? You must do these things in order to be a Christian. Are they kind of like aspirational values? Like, it'd be great if we could live like this, but no one really can. Is this something we could look forward to when Jesus Christ comes back in? But the first thing I want us to realize is that when Jesus is giving this sermon, certainly there's a crowd sitting all around him, but the sermon is directed specifically at his disciples. The sermon is directed specifically at those who are a part of the community of faith. And that's very important for us to realize because the Beatitudes and the, the Sermon on the Mount in large it's not to be seen as an entrance requirement. We're not to look at the Beatitudes and say, look, if we do these things, if we do these things, if we do these things, then God will let us in. In fact, it's to be seen as a reflection of the transformed lives of those in God's kingdom. Right. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we should say, yes, that that is describing exactly those who we know to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as Jesus is making these statements, he's articulating, this is what the kingdom values. This is what the kingdom prioritizes. This is what the Holy Spirit will do in the lives of my followers when they allow the Spirit to transform their lives, right? There's a line in one of the first songs that we sang today. If the cross brings transformation, then, then I want to hang on that cross with you. And that's really what the Christian life is all about, transformation. And these Beatitudes, they're specifically given to the community of faith to form the church family and to inform the church family, this is who you are. So be true to who you are. Well, we continue on. And in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 2, uh, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus begins this sermon with uh, what we call the Beatitudes. It's a series of blessed statements. Blessed, 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 blessed. And the first question we, we might have is, what exactly does this word blessed mean? A few years ago, people were using the hashtag blessed saying, oh, look, I'm sitting on a beach. 
with my drink of choice and I see this beautiful sunset and I have my kids around and they're playing, you know, quietly and everything is great. Hashtag blessed, right? Or they might say, oh, look, I just got my third Lamborghini and, you know, on top of my, you know, five Maseratis and, you know, my life is just so good. Hashtag blessed. And so people were using this hashtag to describe all the material and physical blessings they were receiving. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Some translators of the Bible will translate uh, this word blessed to be happy. And I think actually that's not a bad translation, but our English sense of the word happy is kind of a subjective word. And it goes back to the root happenstance. Right? There's no rhyme or reason. It just happenstance. Uh, the situation just happenstance. And that, that's where we get the word happy or good luck. Well, this word for blessed, it comes from this uh, Greek word makarios. And uh, we, we read the ancient Greeks had this island called Cyprus, but they called it the Isle of Makarios. And they called it that because everyone who lived on the island, they didn't need anything else. They had their own food, they had their own water, they had a beautiful scenery, the people were self-contained. And from the outside, looking in, the residents of this island were joyful and happy. And so they called this makarios. And that's where we get this word uh, blessed. In the Old Testament, the idea of God blessing his people conveyed the idea that uh, they received the approval of God. And, and what this word blessed means is it's the favor and the approval of God. It means uh, that we have uh, Max Lucado translated like this. And I, and I love this. We have the smile of God upon us. And when Jesus is saying blessed for each one of these beatitudes, he's saying when you have these characteristics, right? This is a stamp of approval from God because the world is going to look at your condition. The world's going to say, oh, this person, that's really a bad situation. Or, oh, you know, this is so unfortunate for them because they're always uh, mourning or, you know, they're, they're, they're always stuck in the middle of these two fighting parties. But Jesus is saying, no, the approval of God, the favor of God, the smile of God is upon you. And so we begin by hearing this first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The favor of God is upon the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think it's any accident that Jesus begins his sermon with this particular phrase, poor in spirit. Now, there's two different words that Matthew could have used or Jesus could have used to describe poor. Right? There's just a the regular poor, handsome mouth kind of uh, poverty that many people experience in the ancient world and even in our world. But the word he uses describes a person who has absolutely nothing. In fact, the word sometimes is, is used to describe someone who cowers or crouches because they're so ashamed to look at society, to ask for anything. They just put their head down. They're the beggars of society. And so when Jesus here is saying, he says, God's favor and God's smile is upon those who are spiritually beggars, who are spiritually destitute, who know that they have absolutely nothing and they're completely dependent upon God, that they're spiritually bankrupt. The idea here being that we recognize there's nothing that we can do to earn God's approval, to earn God's favor. We are absolutely dependent on the work of God himself. 
because it's only when we realize that there's nothing that we bring to the table, that, that there's nothing that we contribute to our spiritual life. In fact, we are at death's door and we need the great physician to come and heal us. That's when we experience God's favor, right? That's the, that's the initial start of the Christian life. A, peer, a picture of the spiritual bankruptcy Jesus gives us in Luke 18, when Jesus tells this parable of two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And in those days, tax collectors were despised. They were uh, corrupt. They would steal from their own people. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 11 and 12, we read the, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, those extortioners or those unjust, those adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here, because I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, every single one of us who have entered into the kingdom of heaven have started somewhere at this point where we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because we know there's a poverty in our spirit. There's nothing that we can do. There's no amount of tithe, no amount of fasting that will earn God's favor. And we, we, we can't even bring our eyes to heaven. We just say, God, I need you. I need your salvation. I need your rescue. I need your savior. And salvation begins when we re recognize our own poverty and we cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when we do, God enters our story and God says, my son has already paid the price for your sin. You're not worthy, but my son is welcome into my kingdom. Well, he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, the second blessing builds upon the first blessing. And Jesus here isn't talking about people who are perpetually crying. They're always weeping. They're always sad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that these are people who are mourning over their spiritual poverty. They recognize the sin in their lives. And they recognize that they continue to sin. And they're broken over it. They're, they're broken over their capacity to sin. And, and, and they're just mourning. They say, God. I recognize your holiness and I see my own sinfulness and I just want all of this to be removed and to be covered by your son, Jesus Christ. And the connection between the first beatitude and this one is the first beatitude. It makes a statement. It's an intellectual assent to what is true. We are spiritually bankrupt. But the second beatitude, it's an emotional counterpart, right? The first one says, yes, I'm a sinner. But if you do nothing with that, Right? It dies on the vine. But the second beatitude, there's an emotional counterpart. It's our response. We recognize the depth of our neediness and we are grieved over it. And the question we need to be asking ourselves is, do you grieve over your sin? Or do you ignore your sin? Do you recognize your sinfulness and respond in repentance? And you're like, oh, you know, like as the Lord brings things into my heart, it's like, oh, this really is not pleasing to you the way I talk to my family, the way I, I, I work, the way I witness to my neighbors. God, this must grieve you and it grieves me. And now this happens all the, you know, all the time if you're a Christian. And, and notice what he says. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
right? Because when you mourn over sin, when you grieve over sin, God will bring you comfort. Now, this word for comfort is the Greek word paraclete. And for those of you who've been a part of our church for a while, you know that is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and to lead us into repentance. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. So make no mistake, we come with absolutely nothing and we're grieved over our sins. The Holy Spirit continues to convict us. And it doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for a very long time. The Holy Spirit continues to convict us of sin in our lives. And we repent by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comforts us. God promises to comfort us, to forgive us, to give us hope. Well, he continues on and he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is a weird one because we don't really like the word meek in our day. It sounds like weak and we even think it's translated as weak. We think of meek person. We think of someone who's wimpy, maybe someone who's like a doormat and just everyone is is walking all over them. When when in reality, meekness is, is a far in a way, much more powerful word than any of those definitions. And the reason uh, there's a picture of a horse here is in the ancient Greek, uh, men would describe these magnificent stallions, these these, uh, animals of great strength and great muscle and full of raw power. But when it is well-trained, it would obey its master with just a a voice. And, And they would say, that is a meek animal. Uh, And so meekness really should be understood as power that is under control. And and there's a connection building up. I'm not sure if you could see it quite yet. Blessed are the spiritual beggars because they recognize, they recognize their their poverty, their depravity. And when they recognize their their poverty, they recognize that they need a savior and they mourn over their sin. They, they, They are led into repentance and God comforts them in their sin. And, and then God comforts us in our mourning. And out of that, out of that comfort should arise a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of meekness, a spirit of, of power under control. Right? Have you ever noticed that uh, when you're critical of someone, I, I find this true of myself, when I'm critical of someone, it's because I think I could do it better than they can. And I'm like, why, why would they do that? They're such an idiot. Like, I would never do that. I would never make that mistake. I would never think that way. I would never fail in the same way that person fails. We become arrogant and we become rude. But when we recognize our sins, when we really mourn over our sins, and when we receive the comfort and forgiveness that only God can give to his children, How can we be critical and sit in critical judgment over someone? Rather, true followers of Christ, they they exhibit a meekness, a gentleness, power under control towards others. It'd be easy, and the world does this, to lash out and just say, "You're you're an idiot. You did this wrong. How could you do this? But someone who has experienced the comfort of the Holy Spirit they're able to bring that comfort to other people. For those of us who submit ourselves to Christ, who have the kingdom of God, who have the Holy Spirit, we're able to be meek 
towards other people. Well, Jesus continues on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Probably for most of us in this room, in, in, in your rooms and watching this, is uh, we have a hard time understanding fully the meaning of the word hunger and thirst. It's this deep desire, right? this just absolute desire to, to have something. And when Jesus talks about this, he's talking about a deep desire, a hunger and thirst, a deep longing for righteousness or right relationship with God. I've shared this before. One time uh, I was in college, I decided to go uh, kind of on, on a spur of a moment, uh, hike up, up Half Dome. And this was before you had to apply for the lottery. And we, we were completely unprepared and I had absolutely no water. It was like a 12 hour hike for me and two of my friends. And by the time we were coming down, descending, our throats were absolutely parched. It just hurt to breathe. And, you know, you're up at elevation. The air just is really dry anyways. And every breath you take, you're just like, oh, this hurts so much. And for those of you who have gone up to Half Dome, you know, there's a couple falls on the way down. There's Vernal and Nevada going up and in, in reverse. And I remember coming down, just experiencing the mist from the fall, the waterfall. And I'm just opening my mouth, letting the moisture uh, soothe my parched throat. And that's the image here. The image here is, do you long desperately for righteousness? And righteousness, notice that uh, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the righteous, right? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's actually two ways we can understand uh, righteousness in the New Testament. One is an objective righteousness where God says, I make you right, right? Because you are now in my son, Jesus Christ. But the way that Jesus is using this word here is, it's a subjective righteousness. It's an interpersonal life pursuit of righteousness. It means desiring to be in a right relationship with God. Desiring to, to remove all the obstacles before me and God, to, to bring all the sins, to bring all the filth, to bring all that junk that's in my life and removing them before God. There is nothing else in my life. I am singularly focused on pursuing righteousness, on hungering and thirsting for being in a right relationship with God. I wonder how many of us desire to live our lives rightly before God. And I think so often we don't even think about how we are living before God. We think, how are we living before our family? How are we living before our coworkers, our, our classmates? How are we living before our neighbors. We don't oftentimes think, how are we living before God? Am I pursuing the things that God wants me to pursue? Am I hungering and thirsting to, to arrange my life, arrange my priority, arrange my time so that I could be in a right relationship with God? This is daily. This isn't just at the point of salvation. This is every single day. Am I arranging my day so that I can be in a right relationship with God? As we started this whole um, Love This Book journey, one of the obstacles that I heard from people is, you know, there's just so much reading. There's just so much Bible passages to read. I, I really don't want to. 
But we have no problem scrolling through the news and finding the latest statistics or, or, or finding where we could buy the most masks or you know, finding when schools will reopen. And I wonder, do we hunger and thirst to have a right relationship with God, to, to prioritize our lives? And if we have this kind of hunger, if we have this kind of thirst, notice what the reward is. Notice what the blessings, the approval of God is. You will be satisfied. You will, will be filled. When we hunger and thirst to live lives of righteousness, the Holy Spirit that comforts us will lead us into righteousness. He will transform us. He will guide us and he'll remind us of all that we have learned about Christ and he will satisfy us. Do you desire to be in a relationship with God? Do you, do you desire to overcome sin? Do you desire to be humble before God? Well, he goes on in, in the next beatitude is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the word mercy is a word that we hear oftentimes. Sometimes we get it confused with grace. We hear it combined together, grace and mercy. Uh, both of these words describe God's action towards us, but there is a distinction. Grace means receiving something that you don't deserve. So if someone just randomly gives you a gift, right? You didn't ask for a gift. You didn't work for a gift. You would say, well, that was gracious of them. That was a, a gift, a grace. But mercy, uh, an easy way to remember this is not receiving something you do deserve in a negative sense of the word. Mercy means not receiving a punishment that you do deserve, right? Mercy is uh, compassion in action. It, it's, it's having punishment withheld that we deserve. And so in this fifth beatitude, Jesus is teaching those who have recognized their sins, those who have grieved over their sins, they realize their dependence on God, and they, they respond by saying, God, I want to have a right relationship with you. God, I want to, God, I want to have no obstacle with you. And here the evidence of their new life is how they respond with mercy. Jesus tells a story, a parable of a, of a person who owes a king millions of dollars. The, the amount doesn't really matter. The, the, what matters is this debt is unpayable. And, and this man who owes this king so much money, one day the king says, okay, time to pay up. And the man falls at the king's feet and he begs for mercy and says, you know, king, I don't have the money, uh, but don't worry. I'm, I'm going to pay for it, and which is absolute nonsense. There's no way he could pay him back. And the king surprisingly says, it's okay. I forgive you of your debt. He has mercy on him. Well, a few days later, another uh, servant of this king uh, who owes a little bit of money goes to the original servant, and the first servant says, hey, you owe me money. Give it back to me. And the second guy says, I, I, I'm good for it. You know, just give me a little bit more time. The first guy says, no, you're going to prison. Well, the king hears this story. He's so furious with the servant. Why? Because the servant experienced mercy. He experienced forgiveness of a debt that was unpayable. And yet he doesn't exhibit mercy towards others. And what Jesus here is telling us, for those who are in the kingdom, for those who have recognized their spiritual bankruptcy and they mourn over their sin, 
right? And they're comforted by the Holy Spirit and they have the single-hearted desire to follow God. Those people have experienced the greatest mercy of all from God. And those people of anyone in the world should express mercy to others. And the question for us is, do we extend mercy to others? Have we been forgiven a lot? Have we been loved a lot? Have we had a debt that is unpayable forgiven? Are we able to do the same to others? Jesus continues on, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What, what a beautiful promise. Remember reading just a couple months ago, Moses wanted to see God and God says, no, if you see me, you'll die. I'm just so holy. And here Jesus is promising us the pure in heart, they shall see God. And in this beatitude, Jesus is talking about an inward purity in contrast to an external purity. He wasn't talking about a person who comes to uh, the service all the time or, or gives 10% or keeps all the 500 laws of scripture. He's talking about someone whose heart is pure. And, and by heart, the Bible means your inward motivations, the attitudes, the desires. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to pursue God with undivided attention, with a pure motivation. We're not doing these things to be rewarded by people. We're not even doing these things to be rewarded by God. Sometimes you hear Christians joke around and say, oh, you know, I'm doing this and now you have a crown in heaven or, oh, you know, because you said that now the crown is taken away. We're doing these things because we love God. Our hearts are pure towards God. We desire to worship God with a purity of heart. And th this idea is, is, it's like, you know, sometimes you buy, let's say you buy a mask and it says 100% cotton or 100% polyester. It means there's, there's no other fabric in it. Sometimes they talk about uh, metal alloys. There's, there's no uh, mix of any other metal in it, right? And so what Jesus here is saying is those who pursue me, with an unmixed devotion, with a singular focused devotion, they're going to see me. They're going to see me as I work around the world. They're going to see me as my, my spirit is transforming other people's lives. And all of these, all of these beatitudes, they're, they're building upon one another, right? As we pursue to be in a right relationship, our focus is now singularly on Jesus Christ, right? We, we, we don't have any, uh, mixed motivations. We're not distracted by something else, right? You ever notice that when you're talking with someone and they're not really that interested in talking with you, they're like constantly looking at their phone. I remember when I first started, um, when the, the Apple watch or smartwatches first started coming out, I thought it was the weirdest thing because people would, I would have a conversation with someone and every so often they'd go like this. I'm like, why, why are you looking at watch so much? And they're just like checking their texts or whatever. But you know, like it, it's this completely uh, opposite meaning of what Jesus had. They're, they are divided. Their attention is divided. They're looking at something else all the time. And what Jesus here is saying is, if you fix your eyes on me, you will see me. If you fix your eyes on the things above, right? On the, the purpose the desires of God in your life, you will see God. 
Well, he goes on, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And when, when Jesus was teaching, we know that the New Testament was written in Greek, but most likely uh, Jesus either spoke Hebrew or, or he spoke Aramaic. The Hebrew word that, that he would have used, or he probably would have had in his mind at least, was the, the Hebrew word shalom. And we hear that word a lot, shalom. In English, peace can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes we say a baby is sleeping peacefully. So when someone passes away, we say um, they're uh, resting in peace. Uh, sometimes we say if there's a ceasefire between two countries, that, that there's finally peace. But shalom has a slightly different take than that kind of peace, though it does encompass all of those definitions. For the Jew, shalom meant peace, but it also means wholeness. And it means completion. And it means restoring a relationship to the creator and creation. So when, when a Hebrew person or a Jewish person would come up to you and say, Shalom, they're not just saying hi. They're saying peace and may you be whole and complete in a right relationship with your creator and his creation. So what Jesus here is teaching, he's not talking about let's protest the wars. Let's protest the violence. Let's actively pursue peace. He's saying, let's bring people into wholeness and into completion in a right relationship with their creator and his creation. The Bible teaches that all of humanity is at war with God. We were, we're born in this state of war. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, mankind has rebelled against God. No one loves God. No one desires God. Everyone hates God. Everyone turns away from God and everyone says, I don't want to worship God. I want to worship what I want to worship, but it's definitely not God. Every single person that has ever been born has cast aside God as their king. But what God has done is he has declared peace through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, this bridge, this gap is now bridged and it's brought together through the Prince of Peace. But not everyone knows about this peace yet. Not everyone knows uh, that there is this reconciliation given between God and man. There's stories uh, about Japanese World War II soldiers and they were fighting and they were uh, isolated on these islands and they continued to fight. And they didn't know about the peace treaty that was signed at the end of World War II. So they kept this uh, guerrilla warfare up for many, many years. Right. And so the locals were like upset because every so often they would lose, you know, a cow or a village would would have a, a house set on fire. And they were like, this is ridiculous. The war's been over. And so they would fly over the jungle and they would spread flyers and spread leaflets. And, you know, the soldiers would say, see it. But like, no, this is the enemy. They're trying to trick us. There's one man who actually was recorded to continue this war for 30 years after the war was over until finally his former commander from Japan was flown out. He actually owned a bookstore at the time. Uh, he, he flew out and he went into the jungle to look for the soldier. And he says, there is peace now. You no longer have to be at war. Our jobs as Christians, right? is we bring peace between man and God. We tell people that God has already restored the relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. And we offer the good news 
that there can be restoration between that person and God, that there can be an end to the open rebellion uh, between that person and God. And because of that, we have peace, but we're also able to bring peace to the world. And notice what peacemakers are called. They're called sons of God. Now, this word sons of God or, you know, child of God, it's often used in terms of a reference to a relationship. But when someone is called a son of a person, oftentimes it talks about a characteristic that that person has, right? Barnabas was called the son of encouragement because he constantly encouraged something. Judas was called the son of perdition, right? When peacemakers are called the sons of God, it means that when you bring about peace, you're... Ex- exhibiting the characteristic of your heavenly father because God is a God of peace. So whenever we bring about peace, whenever we restore relationships between people and God, we're reflecting God's heart and God's characteristic. Well, he goes on and this next two shall be read together. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, these last two are read together because uh, one actually expounds upon the the other. The first one is blessed are those uh, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And the second one says this is specifically the kind of persecution that you should experience. Now, notice the type of persecution, the the condition for approval uh, comes from the reason for the persecution. Right? Because Christians could be persecuted all the time. They could be total jerks and say, oh, look, I'm being persecuted. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. When you are living in a right relationship with God, when you are pursuing the things of God, when you're pursuing the kingdom of God, and other people look at you and other people say, hey, I'm really uncomfortable with that. Or they make fun of you because they want to bring you down. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, oh, you could be insensitive or you could be a jerk or you could be totally rude to someone and say, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying. We're persecuted for righteousness sake, right? When we try to draw people towards God, when we love our neighbors and we forgive freely and other people are like, you know, what's going on? This person, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. And and there will be some who will persecute you. And Jesus is saying, that's when you know you have the approval of God, right? That's like God's stamp of approval in your life. In fact, if you are a Christian, you should not be surprised when persecution comes. In fact, Jesus promises us that we will be persecuted as Christians, People will make fun of you and say, you believe that? That's ridiculous. Or perhaps worse. You might not get the promotion. You might not have the friendship. Or perhaps worse. You might be imprisoned or beaten or even murdered. And we know all around the world, Christians are being murdered for their faith. This very day, Because they are Christians around the world, they're being imprisoned or murdered, and they're being persecuted. 
for some reason, sometimes we think that persecution and oppression is something that we should avoid at all times. The point is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to expect to be persecuted. But know that when you are persecuted, when people revile you, when they make up lies about you, that the smile of God is upon you. The face of God is upon you. The approval of God is upon you. So the final application here is this. If these are the values of the kingdom, if these are the characteristics of God's kingdom, how are you doing? Are you exhibiting God's values? Now, I want to be very clear once again. These Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, we don't do these things so that we can earn God's approval. We don't do these things so that we could earn uh, a way into heaven. We do these things because the Holy Spirit has already taken our heart and transformed us. And when we trust God with our lives, with our thoughts, with our time, with our money, this is how we will look. Right? And the truth is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we already have these blessings. And the truth is, the truth is, these beatitudes are in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. And so I want to ask you this question. I want you to reflect on this question. And I would love to hear from you if, if you want to, to just email me or text me and just say, this is how I've really been struggling. Or, this is one beatitude I've really um, I've, I've experienced this week, or I see it in my, in my family, or I see it in my friends. How have you experienced these beatitudes in your life. And this week, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, I, I don't want you to read it like, oh, here's a list of things I, I have to do. And like, oh, I called my brother a fool. And oh, now I'm going to the fires of hell. No, no, don't read it like here's an here's a additional list of commands. Read it and, and realize this is a mirror of what a Christian life looks like. And it's looking back at you and it's saying, this is who you are. As a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you will look like. So live as you truly are, right? Not who you are right now, but as you truly are, allow the Holy Spirit to empower you. Now, there may be some here who um, are not believers and you're watching, maybe you're watching with friends or you're watching with family or you stumbled across our YouTube channel and you're watching and you're thinking, well, I, I also want this kind of life. What, what, what you just said, these are the things that I want. And I believe because these values are so radically different from the world that God may be doing something in your heart right now. And if that is you, I encourage you, would you pray to God? All, all you do is you, you speak with God. You say, God, I am a sinner. There's nothing that I can do to earn my way into heaven. And I need you to save me. I repent of my sin. I want to turn away from all those things I've done wrong. I need help to do that. Would your Holy Spirit lead and guide me? And trust that the Holy Spirit will change your heart and make you a beatitude type of Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you've given us an image of what we will look like one day. Not, not fully here on earth, but at least we're moving in that direction. And God, for us as a church, will we be a beatitude type of church? And will we be beatitude kinds of Christians? Would we encourage and, and spur one another on to live the beatitude kind of life? Would your spirit be at work in us? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.